But uh, we're going through all 50 chapters of Genesis. We'll be in chapter 33 tonight, so if you want to turn there. But before there, I wanted to just give you my memory aid for Genesis 1 through 11. And some of you have heard this uh, a number of times. Some of you heard it for the first time last week, maybe some tonight. But I just think of a ball spinning out in space. And there's a man walking on it, and then he falls. And as he falls, his knee hits the ground. Water starts coming up, and he uh, starts to drown, and he climbs up on a tower. And that picture is all you need to remember Genesis 1 through 11. There's four major events in uh, those chapters. There's a creation, that's the ball spinning. And then the man walks and he falls. It's a fall of, of uh, mankind, Adam and Eve, in Genesis 3. And then uh, the next major thing, of course, is the flood. There's some things in between there, but they're relatively minor pointing up to the flood. The flood is a, a big issue, of course. The confusion of languages, the dispersion of people, and then the Tower of Babel. Uh, where that uh, language is uh, set in, into a number of different ones. If you've ever traveled uh, and have troubles like I do trying to communicate with somebody when you're traveling out of uh, country, then that's part of the result of the Tower of Babel. So those four things uh, go. And then in Genesis 12, God starts then what's going to last for the rest of the Old Testament is that he's going to go through Abraham and his descendants. And by doing that, he then uh, sets up the nation of Israel. And out of Israel, of course, Jesus Christ is born, the Messiah. And he then blesses all nations. And so uh, I've gone over a number of times, uh, a couple times in church with both high school and adults, uh, the walk through the Bible. And it's just a, a simple thing. And I know for uh, uh, probably Todd tonight or whoever was working last night, I move around a little bit with this because it's a walkthrough. And so up here on the stage, if you can imagine, over here is Iraq and Iran. Uh, and then over here, up here is modern-day Turkey, or Haran in those days. And Canaan <coughs> is right about down here, the Promised Land. And Egypt would be right over here. So that's why it's a walkthrough. That <coughs> by doing that, what uh, Bruce Wilkerson did when he came up with this walk through the Old Testament. And we're only going to go through Genesis. And it's just, uh, you don't have to do the motions with me. The motions help me to remember what's going on, and that's what they were designed to do. But uh, when you do the whole walkthrough, you can get through the whole history of the Old Testament in about eight or nine minutes. And it puts it together, and as I mentioned last week, as a uh, second-year student at Dallas Seminary, when I went and saw this, that I learned more about the Old Testament in that one day <laughs> of going through the walkthrough and learning that than I had in a year, almost a year and a half of seminary. So um, basically, what happens in Genesis 12, it says that, uh, that uh, it was 4,000 years ago in Ur, of the Chaldees, God calls the salt of the earth. Sarah, Abraham, Lot, and Terah. Went between the Tigers and Euphrates rivers to Haran, where Terah died. Abram went to Canaan, saw with eyes of faith, Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, most important, Joseph, in bondage to Egypt. Israel follows. And that's Genesis. <laughs> From Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, you know, the, the four main characters, the main characters there, of course, are Abraham and then uh, Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph because they, they take Joseph from uh, chapter 37 on and follow, uh, well, Jacob uh, is there, but then Joseph is, is the primary character and, of course, is, is the one who goes down uh, in captivity to Israel and uh, the whole nation of Israel follows. So that's kind of the, the, that whole section. So if you want to, you can save four planks or, or four parts in Genesis 1 through 11. Or remember the ball spinning, man walking, he falls down, 
water starts drowning him, he climbs up on the tower. And then uh, going from early Chaldees up to modern day Turkey, down to Canaan. Uh, they stay in Canaan for most of Genesis and at the very end, they go down to Israel, or down to Egypt rather, and Israel follows. And by that time, of course, Israel uh, is the name of not only Jacob, but it's gonna be the name of the nation. You know, if God hadn't done what we looked at last week, that we'd be talking about the nation of Jacob instead of the nation of Israel. And, uh, you know, we'd be used to it. It wouldn't sound weird or funny, but uh, that does sound different now. And uh, so that's kind of uh, what we do there. And then, as I mentioned last week, that uh, my training led me to come up with expository preaching, which is what Ron Daniel did, if, if you were here with him, and what Sean does. Found a new pastor on uh, Sunday, uh, that uh, Carl at First Baptist, I went to both Meadowbrook and, and First Baptist on Sunday. I was sick and thought I'd make them sick instead of you guys. So I went over and visited. But uh, Carl does expository preaching. At, uh, a lot of pastors say they do, but not a lot of pastors actually go through the text. They, they use, as I mentioned last week, springboard preaching, where they'll just read the text, get up in the air, and then they can go anywhere they want to go. But uh, with uh, the expository preaching, that we are trained to have a big idea. And uh, that's just the term we use. You could call main idea, whatever you want. And so um, if you weren't here last week, I thought there were two sections in Genesis 32, just to review, that uh, in uh, verses uh, 1 through 21, that I think the big idea there is um, if you blow it and you know it, don't respond in the flesh. That uh, Jacob here, as he uh, is coming, knows that he defaulted Esau that he stole both uh, the uh, birthright and the blessing from him. He, he knows that was wrong. He's been guilty now for about 20 years thinking about that. And uh, so he's coming back. But in, in what he does, he sets up all these different groups of his animals to go out before him <laughs> to give to Esau. So he's responding mainly in the flesh again, just trying to say, if I give him enough stuff, maybe he won't kill me. I hope. And so he does that. And then uh, verses uh, 20 through 22 through the end of the chapter was a, a whole different section, and we treat it as that. And uh, in that uh, section, uh, this is where uh, uh, Jacob wrestles with uh, the angel. Um, and uh, as we saw that some are, are saying that's the uh, angel of God, that it's God, God himself. But in verse 28 of chapter 32, it says, Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with me and have prevailed. And uh, so we think that uh, he was there. And uh, so the big idea there was that wrestling with God can change your life. And in this case, the most specific thing it did, it changed his name. <laughs> he went from Jacob to Israel, one who wrestles with God, one who uh, tries to encounter and, and understand God. And so we just talked about the idea that as you wrestle with God at different times in your life, over a minor thing or a major thing, that God can change you if you let him. And I think the, you know, the change here is, is a change in name and, and um, that uh, he uh, then uh, in verse 30 of, of chapter 32, he named the place Peniel uh, that I have seen the face of God. And uh, there was evidence uh, he was limping, uh, his thigh was injured. And so this wasn't just a dream, it was actual. And he actually wrestles with God. Now what I would do if I were writing this, I would have a marvelous, magnificent change in Jacob or Israel. There's some, there's some change. We'll see that tonight, but not nearly as much as, as I would have thought. 
And that's true you know, throughout the Old Testament, except for just a few men, <coughs> and through many of the heroes of the New Testament. That uh, just because you make the Bible doesn't mean that uh, you are sinless. And just because you are an apostle or uh, one of the patriarchs doesn't mean that uh, everything changed necessarily. So I think chapter 33 is one section, one big idea. And uh, so I would say the big idea is this. When you're used to relying on your flesh, remember flesh doesn't mean my skin. It means that sin nature, that uh, innate uh, rebellion against God. When you're used to relying on that, and for 20-some years, that's what Jacob's been relying on. You know, to earn his living, to, to get his wives and his children and all those animals, he's been relying mainly on himself. Now, he recognizes that God, we'll see this tonight, that God uh, does go ahead and bless him, both with, uh, you know, his wives and uh, his children and, and the flocks, all, all the animals that he gets. But uh, so if, um, when you're used to relying on your flesh, it's hard to change, even when seeing God's obvious hand. I, I think tonight Jacob has to see that God has changed him a little, and he saw a lot. If I were to pick the, the more, uh, the one who has the more change since we saw Esau last and Jacob when they were together, I'd pick Esau. You know, he, he has, I think, you know, changed. You know, there were some real offenses there. You know, uh, both his birthright and the blessing that, that uh, his dad Isaac was going to give him have been stolen <laughs> from him. And he was very angry and, and wanted, uh, you know, to uh, take Jacob's life. But here he comes, and we're going to see that God has worked in his life as well. But when God chooses, he chooses. And he chose uh, Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, even though Jacob kind of connives to, to get the blessing. Nonetheless, that seems to be God's choice. And so when God chooses, he does. Uh, even though sometimes you might look out and you might uh, see someone say, well, you know, that pastor's not bad, but I really wish this person were pastoring my church. Uh, you know, just different things that come along in life. Sometimes in politics, I think we thought that. There might be a president who's come along at one point or another, and you think, well, I wish the other guy got elected. But, uh, you know, the person gets elected, gets elected. And Jacob is chosen. So this whole section from verse 1 through 20, I think, is a section. And uh, let's take verses 1 and 2 in Genesis 33. Then Jacob lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he... Jacob divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids, and he put the maids and their children in front, and Leah and her children next, and Rachel and Joseph last. Still playing favorites. You know, Rachel's his favorite, and he's going to show that. And uh, he does that in, in kind of the order there that he, he laid out. And, um, you know, there are times that as uh, Robin and Stephen grew up that uh, for a, a few weeks or a month or something, one or the, or the other is probably my favorite, depending on what we were doing. But that didn't last, you know, and then it'd be the other one. And then back, you know, I suppose if you have a lot of children, like some of our families, that that's hard to do. But for me, I, I just kind of uh, loved them both. And there were times I enjoyed being with one more than the other. And then a couple of months later, I enjoyed the other. And I really didn't try to, to focus on one or the other. But uh, Jacob does that. And as you'll see later in Genesis, that that causes heartaches with the rest of, of the sons. And it does in most cases. My sister, maybe legitimately, I don't know, thought that mom favored uh, my one brother, Jim, especially, and then overall, the three brothers and, and not her. We had four children in the family. And as I look back, I, I think she probably was right. 
I don't think mom tried to do that. I, I don't think in her mind she said, well, my sons are my favorites. But just different things that, that came along in, in those days. Uh, there wasn't sports for girls in those days, so my sister didn't play sports. Mom had played basketball way back in, in the 1920s, and so she loved sports and, and just followed that very uh, fervently. And I think Jeannie got the idea that somehow mom cared more for us boys. And that brought a lot of anger and resentment to her that she dealt with most of her life. I think those last months of her life that uh, she finally was able to, to let that go and it was no longer an issue. <laughs> but uh, you know, she lived into her 70s. And so that favoritism can uh, be devastating. It's devastating at work. You know, if you're a supervisor and you have some favorites, and again, all of us like certain people and maybe not as much somebody else, but if your actions are doing that, that can be devastating at work, uh, on a team. And what I always did, you know, I know who the better players on the team were when we played, but everybody got an equal chance to play and, and uh, got to play his number, the same number of games, usually the same number of innings, and uh, you know, just trying to make sure that there's not that favoritism. But uh, he, uh, you know, the whole idea here was kind of trying to protect them. And, and if one furthers back, apparently in Jacob's mind, is the safest. And that here in verse 2 is uh, Rachel and her son Joseph. But finally, in verse 3, he uh, has what I think is, is part of what men are supposed to do, husbands are supposed to do. But he himself passed on ahead of them and bowed down to the ground seven times and he, until he came, down, came near to his brother. Now, I don't think all of us are supposed to bow down to somebody seven times. But he went ahead, uh, left his uh, family behind him, and he was the one who confronted the danger. In his mind, as far as he knew, with these 400 men coming, that Esau was still out to kill him, and that uh, even though these uh, animals and, and the different groups had gone before, uh, he didn't know. I mean, the 400 men were still there. That's a lot of people. You know, 400 guys, you know, makes a pretty good appearance coming down toward you. And so I, I'm sure that uh, Jacob uh, was thinking, you know, the worst, but he comes out. And, and that's uh, my understanding of what God wants from men in our culture or any culture, that we're to be uh, a, the servant leader of a home, not the dictator, not the one who bosses everybody around, uh, not the one who tells uh, your wife to submit to you. Now, I tell my children to obey me when they were home. That I did. <laughs> but uh, I've asked Judy before, and I said, have I, ever, have I ever told you to submit to me? And she said, no, you never have. That's her choice. And she chose for all these years to submit to me, not because I was smarter or uh, handsome or whatever, but simply because God had told her that she was to submit in, in that case, and so she did. Let, look over in 1 Corinthians 11.3, and this isn't a new teaching. It's been taught um, for about 2,000 years, but just to remind you that um, I think Jacob here does what he should, and that's to be the head there. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul's writing, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. And so, you know, uh, Christ is God in human form, and yet God the Father, here apparently in verse 3, is the head of Christ. And um, Christ is the head of, of all uh, men, and, and the man in a marriage is the head of a woman. And that's what is taught uh, elsewhere. Look in Ephesians Chapter 5 and verse 23. This is one of the key passages on relationships in the home. And it starts in verse 20, uh, well, really, 21. Uh, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. 
that in the home, both the husband and the wife need to submit to one another. And uh, I think that's proper. Uh, verse 22 says, wives, uh, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then in verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. So Jesus is the savior of the body. He's the head of this local church, not, not Sean. Sean does a good job as the under-shepherd, but Christ is the head of every local church. But the man is to be the head of the home. And, uh, you know, that, that uh, I appreciate Howard Hendricks teaching us so clearly at Dallas Seminary on that. He, he just uh, spent uh, hours on, at different times going over that and saying, guys, unless you communicate that to husbands and wives, then you're going to have couples in your church having issues. Because uh, when you get two people together, I remember my, my uh, friend Bernie and I were roommates in uh, Laramie our first year there. And we were at Hill Hall. And the two of us tried to live together. And we did well most of the year. But uh, eventually, toward the end of the year, we had some issues. And Bernie saw some things in me, and I saw some things in Bernie. And it didn't go very well those last couple months. And when you get any two people living together, there can be issues. And so you have to have something there, some kind of guideline. And a simple guideline is that the husband is to be the, the servant leader in the home. That you're not the boss, you're not the one who's dictating. That uh, Judy and I do probably uh, 95 to 99% of our decisions together. We make those and pray about them. But there's a few times that a decision comes up and uh, I said, let's do this. And, and Judy says, okay, let's go do that. That's one reason we're here. In Cheyenne, I came to pastor at Meadowbrook and that was my decision and Judy thought it was wise and we came here. Just a, a number of things there that uh, you need to be able to do. My uh, daughter Robin had uh, struggles dealing with this whole issue for a number of years and then came to real peace with it and has lived it and, and taught it to her friends. She has a friend, Rachel, who uh, is a Christian who is living out in, in, in Washington now. And Rachel, uh, for whatever reason, some things that have happened in her life is really struggling with this and feeling that uh, God somehow favors men. And I don't think that's the case. It's just simply that you've got uh, the, the whole idea that in any situation, there's got to be submission to someone. An illustration I mentioned last week, and, and uh, Sean's heard this before, but when Judy was working in the library, I was working here, and so Sean was my boss, and I had to submit to him. Now, he's probably more intelligent than me, but that wasn't why I was submitting to him. But he was my boss, and so if Sean told me to do something, I did. But Judy was my wife, and she would submit to me, so there's two. But then if Sean went down on the second floor of the library where Judy was and wanted to do something, Judy could tell him what to do, and he then should have submitted to her. So if, if submission means somebody else is superior to you, then you've got here three individuals all superior to one another. <laughs> or you have three different situations in which there are submission in each situation. And that's simply what it is in the home, that you have that. But you know, uh, one of the things that if uh, a husband really is, as, as Jacob does here, I think, he goes out in front, he's the one willing to uh, be killed if he needs to be. He's a... Uh, for, for a change, really taking spiritual leadership there and just leadership in general. But if a husband does that, then that, I think, is a value to the wife. Judy many times has said, Bob, I'm so grateful, <laughs> even though we've never made a lot of money, that we've never had probably a day of financial worry in our marriage because we, we are both rather cheap and I'm certainly cheap in, in the leadership financially. Uh, economical, I guess, is a better way. And just talking to a, a good friend the other day, and his job might be a little shaky, and he was nervous about that. And I said, well, a big part of what you can do, we've had four different times when we've gone from making a fair amount of money to 
really decreasing it. Different going from working at the missile range when I went to seminary, that was a big cut <laughs> in pay, obviously. I was a GS-9, going to be a GS-11 the next summer. And, and yet our standard of living really never changed. Or, uh, you know, when uh, different times I've resigned uh, either at the state or at a church and moved on to something different, that God has blessed that. And, and so uh, making that decision is there, and, and we did that uh, normally together. But the key thing there was that was protection for Judy, that... Uh, you know, I, I've always in the financial area made sure that things were going well there. And I think it's fine to submit that. If, if your wife is better in finances than you are, it's silly for you to mess up the finances. <laughs> submit that to, and let her do that. Uh, but one of the things, you know, uh, that I, I hoped helped Robin's friend in, t in being able to look at this whole issue of submission was that the husband, if they're really the leader, takes the hard positions. When my son Stephen was sick a few years ago and then uh, eventually passed away, that I tried to make sure Judy didn't have to make the tough decisions. So I wrote the obituary. Didn't, didn't ask her, I, I showed it to her, made sure that it was okay with her. When I had to buy a gravesite, I went to buy the gravesite. I didn't have Judy come with me. When I uh, set up the funeral arrangements, again, I, I picked out the casket and I did all that. So she didn't have to go through that. So there, there's advantages <laughs> at times to being the head of something and there's advantages sometimes to being the one who doesn't have to take the lead. And so I, I think uh, for men who are willing to, to be that servant leader, that uh, most wives uh, will appreciate that and see that as, as a good thing. So he does that in verse 3. And then verses 4 through 9 uh, of Genesis 33, Then Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. And he lifted his eyes and saw the women and the children and said, Who are these with you? Now this is Esau talking. So um, Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the maids came near with their children, and they bowed down. And Leah likewise came near with her children, and they bowed down. And afterward, Joseph came near with Rachel, and they bowed down. And he said, what do you mean by all this company which I have met? And he said, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have plenty, my brother. Let what you have be your own. So we get to see Esau now, and even though he's brought 400 people with him, maybe that's just kind of his traveling group anyway, that he's not out to uh, get revenge for what had happened before. God has worked in his heart, and uh, you know, in, in so doing, that uh, he comes and, and he runs to meet him and embraces him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. That if my brother did that, I'd be very surprised because that's not my brother's <laughs> nature in life. But uh, what a, a joy to have that kind of reception from someone who you weren't sure if they were going to try to have you killed. And he gets that. So I think, you know, God has been working in these 20 years in the heart of Esau as well. And uh, he comes and, and responds, uh, I think, in just a marvelous way. And he sees the women and children and just, of course, wanting to know what, you know, what's this? Uh, assuming probably that they're his family and, and finds out that they are and, and they get introduced. Uh, again, Joseph last with Rachel. And they all bow down. Uh, again, that's showing kind of submission to Esau. It's a compliment to him that... Uh, in that, in that culture, it would be a very high compliment. And then, of course, he asked, well, what about all this company? You know, remember, uh, if you're here, if you've read through Genesis 32, that uh, Jacob goes ahead and sends out groups of animals, 550 in all. That's a lot of animals to give away. And he, he sends them out at least in three groups, and, and, and the implication is maybe there's more than three groups as they get sent out. And they all go, and they've already all met Esau, and, and each time they were instructed specifically to say, this is a gift from your brother to you. 
And so that was what I meant last week by operating the flesh. That Jacob wants to use these possessions, these animals, to try to smooth things over with his brother. And he's done that for so long, for 20 years, that that just seemed natural to him. But that's uh, operating, I believe, in the flesh. That he's wanting to kind of uh, do what he can to uh, make uh, Esau accept him. And I think, (coughs) without those, as far as I can tell from the text, Esau would have welcomed him in the very same way that he did without the question of what's all this stuff you gave me. Uh, but um, he, he says uh, that, uh, verse 8, I want to find favor in the sight of my Lord. Um, but Esau has plenty, and he doesn't really uh, need that. And uh, this is a, a time, though, that uh, in verse 5, that uh, Jacob says, these are the children whom God has graciously given your servant. So he's recognizing that these are God's good gifts. So this is a change. It's not a big change, but it's a change that you're beginning to see in Jacob. And uh, then in verse 11, when he's trying to convince Esau to take them, he says, please take my gift, which has been brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have plenty. So again, recognizing that even though he didn't work for all those years, that it was still God who, who was the one who um, made the, 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 everything, the, the colors and the stripes and things that allowed those to belong to Jacob. So uh, he begins to see God working his life. And maybe that's in, in your life. You've uh, been operating the flesh for some years in, in some areas and uh, beginning to see that God can be faithful. <laughs> I have to see here that you know, Jacob is, is thinking, well, you know, my gifts probably helped here, but... I, I think Esau would have welcomed me anyway. Now, we don't have those words, but it sure seems from Esau's response that that's what uh, Jacob would have had to, to uh, felt in this. And uh, notice in verse 10, I, he says, For I have seen your face as one sees the face of God, and you have received me favorably. Esau had gone from that bitter, angry face that he had, wanting to kill, to uh, just uh, you know, the face of, of love and acceptance. And maybe you've seen that in life. You know, different ones. I think back to a friend named Denny in high school, and he was an acquaintance. And Denny was one of the most sarcastic people I ever know. It didn't matter to him who he made fun of. <laughs> He'd make fun of, uh, you know, uh, some of the, the kids in class who weren't very smart. He'd make fun of anybody else. And he did that often with me. And so I, I didn't hang out with him very much. Wasn't real pleased. Well, we had our 50th reunion uh, a couple of years ago up in Lust for our uh, class of 1966. And uh, he was there and has come to Christ, and what a changed man. You know, I mean, I, I got to meet him, we talked, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes, and I went away just thinking, you know, God has changed this man tremendously. That, uh, not necessarily in appearance, he just was older like the rest of us, but, uh, you know, in his heart, and his response, and his attitude. That uh, someone who, uh, you know, I would have just tried to avoid earlier, became for that time, and I think if I saw him more often, uh, could be a good friend. You know, God had changed him, God, I think, had changed uh, Esau and uh, is now beginning to change Jacob as well. But when you're used to relying on your flesh, it's hard to change, even seeing God's obvious hand. And I would think Jacob would have to to go to sleep that night and say, whoa, God has changed Esau. This man who was out to kill me has his face of welcoming and acceptance and uh, even offers to to do some things for me. And uh, so I think... uh, he begins to see that God's working. He makes some small steps here, recognizing God's provision of his family, God's provision of all the animals that he has. 
Uh, and, you know, I think wanting him in verse 11 to take the gift, it, it kind of was setting things so that he could look back with some comfort saying, I, I've given all these things. Esau has accepted me openly. And this can begin to set things at peace between these two brothers for the future. Sometimes you need to graciously accept something that people give you. We had um, a man that uh, he was working for uh, uh, the um, coal mines up uh, near Gillette and uh, was going to our church. Um, and he and his wife, they, they liked the music, or she did, Kathy did. And uh, eventually Val and Kathy came to Christ and uh, accepted you know, Christ uh, as Savior. And eventually, uh, after some time, he um, became uh, our associate pastor. And uh, when he did, uh, I just was talking to him. Val had been very generous with different people. He'd earned enough uh, working out there at the mine that he was able to give uh, nice gifts to people. <laughs> well, then when he started working for us at the church, he wasn't rich. And uh, Kathy did some work, but not a lot. And I said, uh, Val, you're going to have to learn to be able to accept gifts. The different ones are going to want to help you. And um, if they do, you need to be gracious and say, thank you so much. Not make a big deal of it. And he did. You know, there were different ones in our church who, who loved him very much and, and uh, blessed them in, in a number of ways financially, as he had before when he had the finances. And so um, Esau here takes the gift. I, I think there's just times in life that you need to do that very uh, graciously, not make a big deal of it, just say, thank you, I appreciate that. And that can cement some relationships just receiving a gift at times. And then um, the... Uh, Verse 12, then Esau said, Let's, let us take our journey and go, and I will go before you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the flocks and herds which are nursing are a care to me. If they're driven hard one day, all the flocks will die. Please let my Lord pass on before his servant. I will proceed at my leisure, according to the pace of the cattle that are before me, and according to the pace of the children, and until, until I come to my Lord at Seir. Uh, so he's offering to just travel along. I think Jacob, you know, still is nervous. He's still not sure that everything is fine and that if they travel together, maybe there'll be some, some problem and they'll have a fight again. Or that maybe Esau is uh, not uh, being completely honest and he might travel along and do something. So Jacob still got the defenses up. And if you've been around someone, maybe in family, I think of different families I've known over the years where there's been real differences and, and they begin to reconcile, but there's still a, a suspicion there. And I think maybe Jacob still is, is just a little leery that if he's around Esau too much, things are not going to go well. I think this would have been a nice time to go back. And you know, one of my favorite trips ever was with my oldest brother, Ern. He was uh, over at his cabin near uh, Afton. And so after a softball game, I left after a softball game here late at night and drove over, picked him up early about five or six the next morning. And we went on what I called a, the graveyard tour of Wyoming, <laughs> which was we, we went up to Yellowstone and then across the northern part of Wyoming Stopped in Lovell, where my dad is buried, in Upton, where a lot of dad's family is buried, and then in Newcastle, where my mom and grandparents are buried, and then over to Hot Springs, where um, some uh, uh, cousins of my mom were buried. And we just had a blast. We st stayed overnight in Sheridan, and this is my big brother, you know, who I'd always admired, and we just had a, a, a great, great time. You know, Ern, for some reason, didn't trust my car. He would, er about every 70 miles or so, he would say, what's the temperature? And I'd look down at, at the car temperature and say, well, it's 62 or 70 or whatever. Well, I don't think that's right. <laughs> and finally, I said, well, why do you keep asking? You don't believe it anyway. And, and just, you know, being with my big brother was just a, a blast. One of the best memories I have. And I think that could have been here, 
but uh, Jacob, I, I think, still a little concerned, a little nervous. Probably what he says is true, that the, the herds don't need to be going fast and, and his family doesn't, but it just seems like he, he's still in that mode of protecting himself and not trusting that, that God would do that. So if there's someone maybe at church that you've reconciled with and being able to open up and, and trust them, that doesn't mean that you spend every minute with them. But there have been different ones in the past where I've had issues. Uh, we've forgiven one another, came back, and being able to, to spend time with that person has been very beneficial, I, I think, to, I hope to them, and it certainly has been to me. Um, and then uh, verse 15, Esau says, Please let me leave with you so the people are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of the Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. So he was just going to leave some guys with him to kind of help protect and, and be there. And apparently, even that makes Jacob nervous. That uh, even though he's now Israel, he, he still is a little leery of that. Um, so <clears throat> I would hope, you know, we had family patterns uh, just like a lot of you do. <clears throat> and uh, there's some jealousy and anger in my family. You know, I think back to different times. Uh, I remember one time my brother stormed out of my uncle's house and was really mad at my aunt. And I think that still lingered for, for years. And if just being able to you know, deal with that individual, forgive them if they'll let you. You know, I've apologized to several people, and uh, they said, well, I'm not going to forgive you. <laughs> so, oh, <clears throat> okay. And there's not much you can do at that point. Uh, you know, and uh, what I try to do then is, is still be nice and smile, but I, I don't try to intervene in their life much. If, if they've uh, made that point that they don't want to forgive someone, then that's their decision, and, and you can't... Uh, you know, just harass them into that. But when there is forgiveness, of uh, being able to, to work hard to, to establish those relationships again. And I think that uh, Jacob could have done that here with Esau. And uh, apparently he chooses not to do that. Verse 17, And Jacob journeys on to Succoth and built for himself a house and made um, booze for his livestock. Therefore, he named it Booze, <laughs> which makes sense. You know, that a lot of... Uh, <laughs> These guys are just pretty practical. I'm going to name this the house of God, or I'm going to name this booze, because we made some booze there. Not booze, booths. <laughs> they might have made some booze. I don't know about that. Um, and then in verses 18 through 20, and, and this might have, uh, all the commentaries say, this is probably uh, 18 through 20, might have taken over uh, 10 years or so. Uh, that it, uh, it reads real quickly, but um, just by looking at ages and different things as you move on through Genesis, it might have taken a few years. Uh, 18, now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, where he came from Padan Aram, and camped before the city. And he bought the piece of land, which he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, uh, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. And then he erected there an altar, called it El, Elo Israel. And of course, Israel, remember El in the last part of Israel, is God, and wrestled with God. And uh, El there is God, so uh, God, the, the mighty God of Israel. And uh, again, if he hadn't had his name changed, it would be God, the God, mighty God of Jacob. But uh, Israel and Jacob are the same now. So um, he, um, again, just like uh, in verse 3, going and, and being in front of his family to protect them, to be the protector of his family, of recognizing that God had blessed him with both his family and his animals. This is another change, I, I think, recognizing that, that God uh, is the one who uh, is there. And he uses, the, remember, the more general name here, El, instead of Yahweh, which is the personal name of God that, uh, 
was given in Exodus. And of course, a lot of folks say, well, if it's given in Exodus, how can it be used in Genesis? <laughs> well, because Moses is writing this after Exodus. So the name's already been given, and so as Moses writes this in Genesis, Genesis here, he already, uh, you know, they already know that the name of God is Yahweh, and they use that. Elohim is the general name for God, but still a, a reverent name that they, they looked at. And of course, uh, when you look at uh, a list, it says, here's all the names of God. Most of those are El with something else with it, showing something about God, his power, his strength, his wisdom. But uh, Yahweh is his only real name, and that's why Jesus, meaning Yahshua, Jesus, or God saves, is such a, a key thing on, on the name there. So what I want to do is go back and, and just talk about the big idea as we close. Um, so when you're used to relying on your flesh, it's hard to see change, even seeing God's obvious hand. It seems to me that there's God's obvious hand here, both in Jacob's life, bringing him through all that's happened and, and bringing him to this situation, and in Esau. And the fact that they come back together so peacefully. So as you go through life, uh, you know, all of us get to some ideas, preconceptions of, of what's going on. And being willing to look and to say, huh, you know, this, this is happening here. I don't understand why. There's all kinds of circumstances that uh, just in the last week as I've talked to different people that, uh, you know, the question is, well, why would that happen? You know, we laid out and planned the best we could and, and something has exploded that. But... Uh, being able to come back and, and see if that is in God's uh, direction, in some new direction for you <coughs> or for the church. You know, that uh, I, I'm just surprised at different times, not only with Calvary Chapel, but other churches I've been in and uh, churches I, I go and, and visit, like visiting these two churches Sunday, that both of them are a lot different than they were under their previous pastors. You know, uh, Billy Minder had been at Meadowbrook and Jason had been at First Baptist. Both of them are gone now for different reasons. They've got new pastors. And the church, you can tell, is trying to settle into a new pastor. And I hope for the folks there, uh, the ones I know, I know quite a few at Meadowbrook and a few at First Baptist, trusting that they're going to give those pastors a real shot, a real chance to lead as they want to lead. They're, they're not the previous pastor. And we hopefully aren't going to face that here for a while at uh, Calvary of having a, a different senior pastor. But that happens uh, it, uh, you know, with Aaron going. You know, I think for maybe some uh, who uh, really appreciate Aaron's ministry, Aaron's a natural shepherd. I think he just does that so well. He naturally shepherds people. And I think there are some folks here probably who are really missing Aaron. Uh, you know, different ones sometimes who lead, maybe lay leaders or good friends who moved on. And uh, you see that and, and you say, well, part of what I've always said is when a, a good friend leaves, I, I'm going to miss them, but I am going to make another good friend <laughs> to kind of take their place so that, you know, I'm, I'm not lonely and, and not having those gaps in life. So I, I think that's what we want to do is to look to say, if I've been relying on myself and my flesh, where can I begin to see God's hand working in circumstances? And that means you've got to be open to, to let him make some changes. And those changes may be no more than, you know, uh, how often you're in church. That um, you were recognizing here at Calvary, what people are recognizing nationwide, that for a lot of people who would say, Calvary's my church, they're probably not here more than uh, once or twice a month in the morning and not at other services. Now, obviously, you're here on Wednesday night, so that doesn't apply to most of you. But uh, you know, I think a lot of people need to look and, and say, if I'm going to have the fellowship with other Christians, I've got to have it, and not just once a month. That, that isn't really going to do it. So uh, just different things that uh, God may bring to your mind, but uh, I think that uh, we want to see God's obvious hand and respond to it. So let's close in prayer. Father, 
I'm grateful for this evening for your uh, work in Genesis from uh, chapter 1 through chapter 50. Grateful for those overviews that we can have of the book to kind of put it together. But Lord, we're grateful for the specifics of this chapter that uh, you uh, brought uh, Jacob uh, to a new place with a new name and uh, brought back uh, what was probably the uh, thing he feared most for 20 years of finally meeting his brother again who he had cheated. And Lord, we are grateful that that went well. Uh, we see your hand uh, both in Esau's life and, and to a degree in Jacob's and grateful that uh, you allowed them to have peace here and that now you've uh, got um, uh, Jacob or Israel set up to uh, begin to be the head of a family which eventually become a nation. We would pray, God, that you might uh, take these lessons and help us to live by them. In Jesus' name, amen.